from the studios of WMYU, this is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colucci, and uh, happy holidays, everybody. This is our going to be our last show before the holiday. Uh, wish you all Merry Christmas, uh, possibly Happy New Year. I actually might be back on the 29th. We're not 100 or the 28th, excuse me. We're not 100% sure on that yet, but definitely a lot to talk about here. And coming into a fantastic weekend of NFL football. You have uh, some MLB moves finally. We do have a managerial thing going on here. A uh, couple big signings from the Mets and the A's. We're going to get to that, obviously. Definitely going to talk a ton about the NFL playoff picture. Uh, if, you, if you don't know, you have 12 teams. 12 teams in the AFC vying for a playoff spot. Who would have thought that would happen? It's arguably the closest AFC playoff race in their his- in in the league's history. Uh I know with the third wild card spot maybe it's a little bit different, but just in terms of how many teams are are in it at this point, I mean, you could have potentially you could have you have 75% of the teams in the conference vying for a playoff spot. I know there was a lot that happened last night we're going to get into. We actually have football tonight if you can believe that. Uh it, it's amazing. 5 days of NFL football in 1 week. Uh, that might be you have Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday and Sunday. It might be the first time in history that that has happened before. I'm not 100% sure on that, but uh it's something we may never see again for that matter i know with all the covid stuff going on that we're actually going to get into a little bit i mean the nhl postponing until after the christmas holiday very concerning considering the uptick in cases and we don't know how it's going to affect professional sports let's be honest here i mean you have a situation where you have one of the four major professional leagues taking a break because of this and you also have another league where it's, uh, well, I'm, in terms of the NBA, you also have many concerns where teams are going out there with eight players eligible for a regular for a regular season game. And that's definitely concerning considering where the league has been at over the uh, over the last few weeks or so. So definitely going to get into that as well but we're going to start with the NFL because of how great a weekend it was. Um, you had I would say seven games with playoff implications. I mean, I, when I say playoff implications, I mean, like, it's actually going to impact the whole slate of things. And it's really like, you know, Texans Jaguars doesn't count. Uh, I'm sorry. That doesn't, that doesn't have an impact in, in the, uh, in the playoff race. But, and, um, you know, you have Washington, Philadelphia, not so much. That's going to be tonight. Uh, but most of the games this, this week, um, all playoff implications for everybody. Um, uh, I mean, there's a couple things to go through here i mean i want to there's a couple things i want to talk about first i want to talk about the shocking upset of the lions over the arizona cardinals i mean you have a team when when there is a favorite of when there is a favorite in the uh in a clear favorite to win a game by two touchdowns when it's 13 and a half 14 and a half i consider that to be it's almost guaranteed and the fact that it wasn't just a close game. It was an 18-point loss to the Detroit Lions. I would say the worst team in the NFL. I, I know you could maybe make arguments for Houston, the Jets, even the Giants. Well, not the Giants, but there are teams that are close to them. But you have a team that has looked lost all season, and somehow they managed to take down one of the best offenses in the AFC by by 18 points. Jared Goff looked 
pretty good out there. He only, he only had five incompletions, three touchdowns. Uh, Craig Reynolds really established the run game. 26 carries for over 100 yards. Uh, shocking. Shocking to say the least. Um, I, I don't understand. I, I don't know if I understand where Arizona stands at this point because there have been instances where it looked like no defense in the NFL could stop them. Yet suddenly the worst one is just doing fine. That it wasn't even it wasn't even a contest. I mean, you had uh, Detroit open up the lead in the second uh, in the second quarter and they never looked back. It was I would say if we're looking at sort of some takeaways from this game, number one is that is Arizona is this a regressing? Is is this a regressing team? I mean, you had an established offense led by Kyler Murray, and he played fine. I wouldn't say it was great. Uh, it didn't look horrible, but I mean, th- this the opening the what the the Arizona team that we saw at the beginning of the season. It almost just seems like it's just not there anymore. I mean, it's it's concerning to know that. Now, Green Bay, I think actually this game says a lot about where Green Bay stands in the NFC. I mean, they are, I would say, odds on best chance to make and win the Super Bowl by far. There is no other team that even comes close in terms of their positioning in the league itself. I mean, Green Bay has remained consistent all season. Arizona shows the hiccup this week. New England shows the hiccup this week against Indianapolis. You have Buffalo, who hasn't remained consistent, and Kansas City, who we don't know if they're going to go back to that team that they were in uh, last year. I mean, they've, they've looked better of late. I mean, great win against L.A. this week in over time we're gonna get to that in a second but i would say green bay is your is going to the super bowl i I, it's a blatant statement but yeah I, i don't see any way that any other team sort of remains a huge threat to them in the nfc there isn't really you could say arizona but they're concerning and then tampa bay tampa bay didn't score a point against new orleans i i can't believe that it's they the saints defense has absolutely just destroyed tom brady it's the first time he's been shut out since 2006 and it's remarkable that well, you could attribute a couple things here. You could you could attribute this to um you could attribute this to a sort of just a one competition kind of thing. Meaning, against New Orleans, they've looked terrible all season. But against any other team in the league, they've looked like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the team that won the Super Bowl last year. And now that you know when you score, when you get shut out. When you get shut out, even if it's against New Orleans, who you can't seem to figure out, a lot of teams can learn from Sean Payton's defense, but. It really just says that there is an Achilles heel that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have that I'm sure Green Bay will find if they have a potential NFC Championship game matchup. I mean, they they look the Packers look better than ever. And, you know, I want to really point out is Baltimore and John Harbaugh's decision to go for two again and blow it again. It's just, you know, when you take that risk, when you take the risk of going for two in a big in a big moment, I mean, it's always like, you know, oh, he's got the balls to do that. And sometimes it works out. I mean, I've seen plays. I know there's a great example of Michigan State back in the day where they, you know, they did a fake play and it worked and they beat Notre Dame. This was a long time ago, 10 years ago. I'm not sure if this was a two-point conversion, but it was a fake that gave them the win as opposed to giving them the tie, which is the whole point of this. And, you know, when you have the sort of the guts to do that, and keep in mind, you don't have Lamar Jackson out there and if you looked at the pass that was made it was a lamar jack i'm sorry excuse me it was a pass to mark andrews
Packers. Uh, great game. Best, uh, I would say, best tight end performance besides Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey just went off on Thursday. And besides that, Mark Andrews, great performance. 30 fantasy points. Looked phenomenal out there. And it's sort of a, it's an outplay. They're going into the corner of the end zone. They're looking for a quick pass over to him. And if he, if he catches it, boom, game over. But, that's not how it went. Uh, Tyler Huntley sort of rolled out and sort of threw a bullet, but he wasn't really open. Green Bay sort of figured out that they were going to go to him if they were going for two, and it just it didn't work. And long story short, Green Bay takes the win, 31-30, to and they're in, I would say, the best position out of any NFC team right now. And now the Ravens are at a point where the Bengals have now taken the top seed from them, and... You're in a position where the NF the AFC North is the Wild West. I mean, there was a point in the in the uh, in the Cleveland game where well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But there was a point in the Cleveland game where they pointed out that Green Bay, if uh, excuse me, if Cleveland had won that game, they would be in first in the AFC North. If they lost, they would be in last. And look what happened. I mean. It was it was a great. Let's talk about uh, the slate we saw last night between you had Chicago against the Vikings and Green Bay. Uh, excuse me, and Cleveland against uh, the Raiders. And you know, Cleveland has always sort of been looked at as sort of the um, I don't want to say like the dog of the AFC North just because of their failures over the last 15, 20, 30 years for that matter. And now, you know, this is a this is a position they haven't been in in I would say not well sort of last year, but in like not since the 90s or the late 80s have we seen Cleveland in a position where they're looking at a playoff run that maybe could be deep, but I don't know. But well, let's put that aside for a second. Just thinking of how Green Bay is over, excuse me, Cleveland is over 500, and they're in a position to take the lead in their division and potentially have a home game in the playoffs for the first time in forever. And now, you know, you get the lead. You throw, uh, you get the lead. You're up 14, 13, and Derek Carr throws a pick right into your hands on the first on the, on the first play of a drive with less than four minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And you're at a point where. Okay, now all we got to do is get a first down and it's over. And Nick Chubb has been great all game. He will not, excuse me, he was not great all game. He was great in the second half. And, you know, they really shut him down in the first half. And in the second half, he was fighting for every single yard he could possibly get. He looked fantastic. The Cleveland fans were cheering him on relentlessly when he managed to get those extra couple of yards on plays where he had three or four defenders clearly in front of him. And he just pushed through and it looked Phenomenal, and I could see why Cleveland could get behind that. But, but you also are in a position where you have to get the first, and they did not. They were stopped short on third and three. They were forced to punt, and and you gave Derek Carr a little time, no timeouts, two minute. They already had the two minute warning, and they managed to get in the field goal range and kicked right down the middle, and it was over. And it just goes to show how one, how great a game football is. I mean, this was Cleveland's game. This was their game to win, and all uh, uh, Derek Carr had to do was take it about fifty yards, and that's what he did. He's a good quarterback, and he managed to be successful in that very. And that very challenging spot. And now the Raiders are in a position where they still have a shot here. They still have hope. They're in a position where if 
things go their way in conference in uh, in divisional play, that they could potentially wind up as the seventh seed or the sixth seed in the AFC. I don't think this is um this is not obviously they're not going to catch Kansas City. Um, and I think LA is in somewhat of a better position, even though they did lose to Kansas City, but. They're still at a point where if conference, if divisional play goes their way, that they could wind up in the playoffs. And that's the case for a lot of teams. The Bengals, same position. They got a big win and now they're at the sort of the seven and seven where, uh, where everybody is in the AFC at this point. I mean, the Miami is seven and seven. Uh, the Raiders are seven and seven. The Broncos are seven and seven. The Browns are seven and seven. Uh, now Cincinnati tied for first with the Ravens in the AFC North. You have Pittsburgh coming off a nice win. Cleveland obviously gets the loss. Now they're in last at seven and seven. Still a definitely a good chance for the playoffs. And this is a phenomenal race. And you can't argue that. And I'm just so excited to see how it's going to turn out. Because in week 16, you have a great Christmas game with huge playoff implications for the Browns uh, against the Green Bay Packers. An awesome competition on Christmas Day. And you have Indianapolis, who has really shown how good they are, going up against a Arizona team, which a lot of people are questioning right now, after the loss to the Lions. So, really excited for the Christmas games. But, you know, turning our attention now a little bit more to the, a to the NFC, where we had the Bears get eliminated from playoff contention against Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings, who again are seven and seven. And, you know, Kirk Cousins only threw for 87 yards. Um, that just goes to show how poor the Bears offense looked and how lost they look every time just in calling plays. I know I saw a tweet from New York, former New York radio host Mike Francesa who discussed how how just disappointing it was to see how far the organization had fallen, how the play calling looked just d disillusioned out there. And, you know, uh, Justin Fields. Pretty solid, 285 yards and a touchdown. But on the defensive side of the ball, mistake after mistake. And it wasn't like, you know, like big gains mistakes. It was penalties. It was stupid things that, you know, any good team or organization that is run, you know, with some authority could manage to not make those mistakes. And that was the case for Chicago. And now that they're eliminated from playoff contention, they're again going to be a position where they're going to get a top 10 pick. And it's just another year in the bag for the Chicago Bears who have not seen success or reasonably good success since Rex Grossman's Super Bowl run against Peyton Manning almost 15 years ago. It's it's amazing how he wasn't even that great a quarterback, yet somehow they managed to get there. I mean, well, let's let's be honest. It was really they were really carried by their defense throughout most of that season, but it really just shows how even though they had had some playoff bursts, some wild card bursts, Green Bay has just run everything since Aaron Rodgers got there and even Brett Favre back in the day, back in 2005, 2006. And now over the last 15 years or so, Green Bay has just run that division. And, you know, Chicago and Minnesota even, I know they're 7-7 seven and seven and probably have a good chance to make the playoffs, but it's always been that way where you just have these NFC North teams that always have some promise at the beginning of the season but can't manage to pull it out. And it's just so disappointing to see how such a historic franchise has really lost their way. And, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have the Bears, who will likely get a top 10 pick. And, you know, another team like that, maybe the Eagles also. I know they also maybe a chance to make the playoffs, won a Super Bowl back a few years ago, but again, seem to be falling back into that same position. But you also have a team like San Francisco, who I think a lot of people dismissed, you know, going into this season. I mean, you had... 
a team that had made the Super Bowl two years ago with a great, great performances by Jimmy Garoppolo and their defense. I mean, it was a it was a great run for them, and you could see how this was a potential franchise built around a good quarterback, solid defense, a good running game. They had every all the pieces they needed to continue their success. And then injuries plagued them last season and then suddenly everyone forgets about them. Yet now you had a game uh you had a game this week with San Francisco where you beat Atlanta by 18. You know, you're 8 and 6 now. Great position, probably going to make the playoffs. Uh, you know, Garoppolo pretty solid, 230 yards. Jeffrey Wilson who has really flown under the radar this year, you know, 110 yards. And then of course, Debo Samuel who should really, you know, it's a wide receiver but really is now a hybrid of the two positions. Five straight games with a rushing touchdown as a receiver. It's pretty wild to see that. And um uh it's it's pretty remarkable that you have a position where um you have a position where the San Francisco 49ers are looking to establish themselves yet again as the team to be, to to be a team to beat out there in the playoffs and you know they've had that run of success um you've had, they've had that run of success um over the last few years or so you know back in Super Bowl 54 then the loss to the Ravens back in Super Bowl 47 and you know they've had multiple good playoff runs they've had to deal with a strong Seattle team and now the script is sort of flipped because you have Arizona in front but again you you still can't count them out obviously they are always, always consistent, and they have maintained, even though they're that historic franchise, they are a model for other organizations as to how to maintain success while rebuilding. It's hard to do, but the Niners have managed to do it time in and time out. Even when they got rid of Montana and Steve Young, they were an okay team. They had one or two losing seasons in there, but managed to maintain themselves with strong draft picks. And, you know, you'd look at a team like the Bears, who, mind you, as I just realized, that they have they don't even have a draft pick this year the Giants had their pick this year I mean that's just how horrible the organization has looked I mean they've made bad moves their play calling stinks they don't understand how to maintain success as a historic franchise like the 49ers have over the last few years and I, I'm shocked to say it but it almost seems like the Bears may have to wait three or four years as opposed to sort of the one or two that's needed in the NFL. This is a three, four, five year wait where I don't see how Green Bay, unless Rodgers leaves at a short notice, uh, I don't really see how Chicago could really make a run in the NFC despite, you know, somewhat okay competition. There's really no room for them to have any sort of thought that they could make a deep playoff run in the next few years. So going to be a lot to see with that. I mean, you also had, uh, I got to talk about Dallas a little bit. They're jumping two spots, even though, even though, well, really it was thanks to um, Tampa Bay and Arizona. You, they're in a position where they're definitely going to win the NFC East, but you know, it's, they have had a lot of questions surrounding them this year, whether or not they can remain consistent. Um, they've looked shaky in many instances. Um, I know, you know, you, you play the Giants. It's not exactly, you know, a, a, um, a, a horrible or uh, horribly difficult game, but even with the win, it really helped them out that, uh, Arizona, uh, the, uh, the Tampa Bay lost and Arizona lost. Now they are tied all together. I mean, you have a two seed that is anybody's race, uh, Green Bay up by one 
at this point. But again, they're not safe from either of those three teams either. So, you know, uh, now Dallas in a pretty good spot, not having to play, you know, not having a ton of difficult games going forward. Uh, they're going to be in a good position where they could potentially wind up in that two spot. And they haven't done that in quite a while. Um, you know, a game against the Eagles shouldn't be too difficult. Um, a game against Washington shouldn't be too difficult. I know these teams are motivated to get those wins because they do have a chance at the playoffs, but you know, in Dallas's case, they're clearly better than either of those two teams. And if you wind up 12 and four, or um, excuse me, 13 and four, or 12 and five, they could potentially wind up as that two seed where you haven't seen that in quite a while. And with a potent offense like Dallas's, I really feel as though they could potentially be in a better position than either Arizona or uh, Tampa Bay. I mean, they've remained consistent all year. Yes, they've had to play less difficult teams, but because they've remained so consistent, I feel as though they might have an edge over teams like Arizona, who now really have to establish themselves, really have to establish themselves this week. This is a must. The last week was a must-win game. Now you, you're in a horrible spot going up against uh, Indianapolis, who obliterated, well, not obliterated. They were up 20 to nothing in the third, and New England did come back. It was a 10-point loss for New England. But Indianapolis really just great all-around play. I mean, you you have a position where when you're up 20 to nothing against a potential rookie of the year favorite and your quarterback only throws for 57 yards, it really doesn't seem like you're going to, you don't really have a good shot. And I know they were favored by two and a half, but... It speaks to how one, how good Jonathan Taylor is. Is he a, is he an MVP favorite? It, it's it's possible. I mean, I know you have Rodgers and Brady, and I think quarterbacks are looked at a little more favorably. But t Jonathan Taylor, 150 yards in over in five games this season, six yards a carry, uh, 170 yards and a touchdown last game against New England. I mean. Even when you have such a questionable quarterback like Carson Wentz, Jonathan Taylor has essentially carried the offense throughout the entire season. And, you know, uh, Darius Leonard on the defensive side of the ball, great performance, eight tackles, a pick. And he looked fantastic picking apart Mac Jones. And now you're at a position, you're in a position when you're in Indianapolis where, you know, I know Tennessee is, I would say, you know, it, it, they're they're up by one game, but by no means is this their division. I mean, New Orleans, uh, excuse me, uh, Indianapolis is in a position where if they beat if they beat Arizona this week, which is certainly not out of the question, and they take their easy win against the Jags in a couple weeks and can potentially beat out on the Raiders. I'd say they're in a great position to potentially win that division and grab one of those top four playoff seeds. Um, a great, great position for Indianapolis. They've been looked at unfavorably and sort of they've come out of nowhere with a great running game, good performances by Darius Leonard, and they've managed to put themselves in a position where they can get a three or a four seed in the AFC. And if you look at the playoff picture now, I mean, you have, uh, you have Green Bay, obviously, as the favorite, um, as the favorite, as the favorite and the one seed in the, uh, in the NFC. They've clinched a playoff spot and now, um, they are, uh, now that they played the Ravens, they're going to go on and move forward with some divisional play. And now, you know, when you look down at sort of the on the bubble teams, you have New Orleans at seven and seven. It's amazing. If they had lost to Tampa both times, we wouldn't even be talking about them. But, 
Now they're in a position, they're the eight. They are looking to catch up on Minnesota, who got the win against Chicago, but they're going to have some difficulties going forward. I don't know if Kirk Cousins is going to look that good over the next couple of weeks or so. I mean, you have two pretty tough games. You got LA and Green Bay coming up. I mean, this is, that is no walk in the park for a team that hasn't necessarily looked great all season. I mean, they've played it close for pretty much the entire year. I mean, if you look at their losses, I mean, they're not terrible. They lost to Green to Cleveland by seven. They lost to Dallas by four. They lost to San Francisco by eight. I mean, they've remained pretty much, they're always in it every game that they play play and they're going to be in it against Green Bay and they're going to be in it against LA but at the end of the day it's the result that comes off from this I mean if if they lose both it's New Orleans it's New Orleans they'll get that seven seed easy I don't really think Washington or Philadelphia has a chance to grab that top uh that last playoff spot if they uh with all these conference games that they have to deal with against better teams I think if uh, you know if the, if, you, if the Eagles beat the Giants and they beat Washington, yes, maybe. But it, it's it, they're in a position where um, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult. And, you know, now, you know, I, I didn't even mention this, but um, Tampa Bay has tons of injury concerns. You lose Chris Godwin for the entire season. He's done. ACL. And, you know, Mike Evans going to be back maybe in two weeks with that hamstring strain. Fournette also same issue. And those are the three best weapons that Tom Brady has. And, you know, when you lose them, it's understandable why you score zero points. But he is Tom Brady. It's the first time he hasn't been shut out in 15 years. And now you're at a point where um, you're you're looking for answers. You're, you're 0-4 against the Saints. He hasn't been shut out in 255 games. That's his second longest streak. Uh, the second longest streak only behind Drew Brees, who was, been, who was around for 20 years. And now, if you're losing your weapons, your best weapons, what what are you left with if you're Tom Brady? Are you are you relying on your defense? Are you the one who's stepping up? It, there's a lot of questions out there. I mean, Brady has always maintained, even with weaker rosters, that he can still be successful no matter what. I mean, I think a be- the best example of that is the most recent Super Bowl with New England against the Rams, where they won nine to three. I mean, it was not Brady's best team around him. It was nothing like um, even the loss against the Giants. Both of those teams were better than the team he had three years ago. I mean, that was a ran- that was a team with Randy Moss, uh, Wes Welker. I mean, that was those were a those were dominant teams. There was a reason why they were undefeated in the regular season in 2007 and. You know, now you're 15 years removed from that. And now you have to wonder, is this the is this the defense's opportunity to step up or is this Tom Brady's time to prove that even without such great weapons and he's going to get them back for the playoffs. But over the next two weeks, are we going to see Tampa Bay take a step back? I think so, unless the defense really proves that they can shut down um, the next couple of opponents that they have to deal with. I mean, it's. There's a lot of questions out there. I mean, you have Carolina and you have the Jets. Shouldn't be too difficult, right? But now, I mean, what what are you left with? You have Gronk, kinda. I mean, he he's been there. I mean, he's been pretty solid. I mean, he had 29 yards against the Saints, but I don't necessarily think that this is. I don't know if Gronk is going to step up in the same way that we've seen him do in the previous in previous years with New England. Uh, but you'd think that with these next two games, they could pull out the win. But it's it time for the defense to step up? I think so. I don't know if this is if Tom Brady is Tom Brady still and. 
I don't know if I trust him with weaker offensive weapons to be just as successful. So definitely going to be interesting to see. And, you know, you do have to think Antonio Brown is coming back. He is going to have that. I don't know if he's the same type of player. Again, so many questions with this offense, but we're gonna, there's a lot of things to think about with that. And, you know, the big issue, even, you know, the, the, the Buccaneers with injury concerns, you know, these are legitimate injuries. And then you also have COVID, which has completely ransacked the league. I mean, it, it's ransacked the NHL and the NBA, which we're going to get to a little later. But in the NFL, you have, um, you have Travis Kelsey on the COVID list. You have, uh, you have the Browns having to start their third string quarterback, Joey Bosa, Jared Goff all of whom are not going to are have a chance to not play. And now, you know, when you're coming into the home stretch of the season, you potentially have these big names out in playoff implication games. This is a bad look for the NFL number 1. I I think all the leagues are having an issue controlling it, but um bad look for them, but now you're Coaches are scrambling. Green, uh, Cleveland was talking about how, you know, there was, it was an unfair advantage that they had to play on Monday night. And, you know, when you look at that, it's, it's, it's understandable the position that they're coming from. I mean, you have this all set up. You're going to play on Sunday and now suddenly you're moving to Monday at five o'clock. It's just, it's a strange time slot for one. And two, you have a game plan that is based on that particular day and moving it up a day allows teams to get players back. It puts them in an unfair position and it's a legitimate point. And I think a lot of teams have to pick, have to sort of pick and choose with that. And, you know, it's, there's a lot to think about um, with that, and I think other leagues are in a worse position. But you have two games tonight. Two games tonight. You have Seattle going up against L.A., and you have Washington going up against Philly. And both of these games are, you know, they're not as exciting as what we saw on Sunday. I think, you know, it's also, I'm a little upset because they both start at 7. And I don't know, I think in the if you're in the New York metropolitan area, you're probably going to get the Philly game. To be honest, I'd rather see the Rams-Seahawks game i think you know i know seattle probably doesn't have a shot going getting into the playoffs but i want to see where la ends up this season i'm really not that excited about seeing whether or not the football team or um or philadelphia can grab that last playoff spot i really want to see what the rams look like and if they can really capitalize on that uh on that cardinals loss i mean the cardinals the cardinals went from the one seed to the four seed and they looked worse than ever so uh definitely a lot to think about there and you have you know if you're LA, uh, if you're, if you're the LA Rams, you have to think about how, okay, the Cardinals are dropping. The Niners looked great. They, they're going to Tennessee and they're going to have to play LA a little later. You have to establish the, you have to establish yourself. You're favored by seven. I mean, if you're making predictions, I'm going with LA. And if you're going with the spread, I think I'm taking LA as well. I don't see how Seattle. I know Russell Wilson has looked pretty good. Uh, and I know LA has some questions, but I really think that LA, puts themselves in a better position i go with la on the spread for that and then you know you have um you have philadelphia where you know they're favored by six and a half i don't know if i see them winning by six and a half i'd probably go washington there um it's definitely some good definitely going to be good games not as great as the sunday slate but um you know great i'm looking forward to having football on a tuesday i mean you know when you're in december it's not like it's baseball season where you have games every day during the week you know nba and nhl yeah sure but you know i'm a, I'm a big baseball guy so i mean this is i look forward to those games a little more than i would an nhl wednesday game and you know now when you have two pretty 
I would say, playoff-implicative games on a Tuesday night. I'm excited for that. So, so much with the NFL. It was just, I was so excited to see it this weekend. Um, I really, you know, I've said this a couple times on the show. I was concerned about that third wildcard spot, sort of delegitimizing sort of the whole exclusivity of the NFL playoff race. And I think it's going to happen in the NF and the MLB. And I'm really upset to see that. But in the NFL, you know, I was concerned, but I like it. I really, you know, I'm into it this year a little more than I usually am. And on so many teams in the playoff hunt, five, seven, and seven teams, an eight and six Bills team. You have um, uh, two NFC East teams that in a weak division still have a chance to make the playoffs. So I'm really excited to see uh, both of these games. I think I'm going to see the Washington-Philly game, but obviously um, uh, I'd rather see the uh, Seattle-LA game. But moving on now, we're going to the NBA a little bit. Um, we're going to go into um, a couple things. Really, COVID definitely going to be one thing, but we got to talk a little bit about Steph breaking the record. I mean, this was this was a historic moment. And I, I you know what? We knew he was going to break it, and he did. He breaks Ray Allen's record, 2,974. It's going to be a number on every trivia question in the book. Uh, what, how, what, what did he break the record with? Um, and now, you know, he is the greatest shooter of all time. Let's, 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 let's just be honest. It was his even after he broke the record. It was his before he broke the record. I mean, I know everyone says this, but... Think about think about this. Ray Allen hit 2,974 threes in 1,500 games. Steph did it in half the time. It's a, both a statement about the league. Um, it is a statement about the league and just how three-point centered it is. But the, he has done things that no other player has done in NBA history. It, it, there's no one I can say that channels that ability to shoot in the fourth quarter consistently, to be as to have such deep range, to do it every single year. Even you know injuries, obviously I get it, but um, you know it's it's different when you're when you're a player that is so far ahead of ev- of everything else. I mean, let's. I mean, this is it is so remarkable that he. He still gets credit as, I would say, the greatest shooter ever. But now you have to even talk about if he's the greatest point guard ever. And, you know, Magic still holds the title for me. I know he's a little older and he doesn't necessarily fall into the new school, whether or not he would have been that successful. But I still go with what's on the court. He is the best point guard of all time. But Steph is going to challenge that. He's got at least nine, ten more years in the league. And he's potentially, he's at the point where, um, he's at the point where, um, you know, it's, this is a, this is where um, I don't want to say that it discredits Magic, but you're at the point where you know he could he could potentially hit three thousand threes. I mean that I'm serious. I'm not three uh, three thousand threes. Excuse me. He could potentially hit six thousand, and that's remarkable. Just to see that 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 could even happen, and it's not even going to be it's not even going to be close. It's not even going to be close that any no one no one is going to get close to that because I think he could do it. I could think he could hit three thousand again, maybe get to five, but we'll see. Regardless, still remarkable. Great to see that, and you know, also wanted to point out Anthony Edwards. You know, ten threes in a game, youngest player ever to do that, and you know when you had previous NBA drafts there haven't really been a lot of you know big time stars to come out of the top three or two picks in a while I mean if you look at you know number one overalls I mean Anthony um, uh, Anthony Edwards really showing himself as sort of 
he's going to be the next Minnesota Timberwolves superstar. Let's face it. He is going to, I don't know if I want to say retired number yet or anything, but he has established himself as, I would say, the best Timberwolves player since Carl Anthony Towns. I mean, I know they have a great one-two tandem out there. Uh, and, you know, with the new ownership group now with A-Rod, I think if you're him, you have to be extremely excited about your the direction of your organization, considering that, you know, you, you've been in the cellar for years. I mean, you're 15 and 15. It's the best record in a while. You're on a four game winning streak. You're in a position where you could potentially sneak into the playoffs in a very tight Western Conference. And, you know, with Edwards and Towns sort of anchoring this organization and, you know, you also have strong role players, D'Angelo Russell, um, Patrick Beverly. I mean, this is the team that, that has really been overlooked by a lot because of how good the West is. And these are, you have young, you have a strong veteran, great young talent. I could see them sneaking into the playoffs. It's very possible. And when you're an eight seed or a seven seed, yeah, I mean, you're probably going to lose in the first round. But this is Anthony Edwards really has, I would say, been the best number one pick in in years, I would say. Um, I mean, Zion, maybe. I mean, this is... Um, uh, uh, this is certainly, um, I was, I would say certainly he has the title of that, but, um, you know, when you're a one pick in the 2020 draft, I mean, besides maybe Anthony Davis, uh, Kyrie Irving, this is, this is his title. I mean, this is a, he has managed to look just as good, better than DeAndre Ayton. This is, he has looked the best out of number one picks in science. So really excited to see him doing success, being so successful. But we got to turn to COVID now. I mean, this is this is really what the biggest issue is in the NBA. I mean, you had Curry, you had Edwards looking good. But now you're at the point where in health and safety protocols, you have the Nets playing with almost 10 with 10 players out. Bulls, Cavs, seven, uh, the Celtics, Knicks, Kings out with six. I mean, these are teams that are in the thick of playoff races and you're playing with a roster where you have to sign guys to 10 day contracts. I mean, um, this is, this is a, you're at the point where, you know, are you going to have to stop? I don't think so. And it's not like the NHL where there's a little bit more, um, there's less leeway. The NBA has a little bit more. Um, but you have, you know, you're coming into the Christmas holiday. Christmas is a huge day for the NBA. It's their best viewership day besides the playoffs and the entire regular season. And, you know, you have all these great matchups coming up, but if you're the NBA, you can't cancel them. If even if you have, you know, all these guys out, I know the max, the minimum number of players that is allowed, that are allowed to play in a game is eight. So you have to have eight in order to play. Otherwise, the game goes to a forfeit. But, you know, there have been tons of cancellations in the NHL. The NBA hasn't seen as many. So, you know, when you're in that position, you have to wonder, are these games going to go by the wayside? Or is the is is Commissioner Silver going to potentially pose a stop after Christmas? He's not going to cancel the Christmas games, but could we see a potential three-day work stoppage? Just just games, just to mitigate, you know, these these rosters that have been absolutely um, you know, circumvented of anything. And, you know, when you're the Nets, I mean, you have Kyrie, you have Kevin Durant, you have James Harden, and you have all of whom have dealt with a ton of COVID issues recently. I know they're not all out at this point, but all three of whom have been out 
Kyrie hasn't even played it now. What's amazing, and of course, the hilarity of this all is that he's entering the health and safety protocols, even though he hasn't played a single game this season. And it's it's sad to see how you know that more than seventy players have been sidelined in the last five games. And I'm worried that we're gonna have you know the same situation as last year, where you have these no fan games and you have um. You have games where either limited audience or, you know, health and safety protocols dominate the scope of the game. And it just doesn't seem like the same sport anymore. And, you know, when your teams that are in a playoff race looking for attendance numbers, that is just going to kill any momentum that the league has to sort of get back to what they once were before the pandemic. I mean, sports leagues are suffering somewhat. There are attendance. There were attendance issues in baseball. I mean, you had for the first month of the season, no one could go in pretty much any instance besides Texas and Atlanta. And um, if you're the NBA, because you're an indoor arena, there's a lot more concerns to think about. I mean, you have way more risk for spread in, in that case. And you can see how in these indoor sports like hockey and basketball, you have more cases. And, you know, with hockey, it's different because um, um, with hockey, it's a little more, there have been more cancellations. There have been, you know, uh, there's a work stoppage already in place for the Christmas break. NBA hasn't done that yet, but definitely a lot to think about there. I'm, I'm concerned, um, that we're going to have a really a NBA season that drops from 82 games to maybe 76, an NHL season that already has dropped in games, but. I, I just I'm I'm at a loss. I, I really I would be so shocked to see that this is happening again. After you know you think it's not going to happen again, you think we're we're putting this behind us, and it's happening again. And you know to, on on the on a brighter note, um, it, it's there has been it's been such a good race this season. Um, um, it's just been you know you have in the and just in the Western Conference, just an example of that. I mean, you have tons of teams that are that are in it this season. I mean, this is not a top heavy. Um, this wasn't as top heavy as it once was. I mean, you have the Mavericks at, the, at a half game behind Minnesota for the eighth spot. Timberwolves, two games behind them. Kings, a half game behind uh, uh, Portland. And, you know, all of these teams could easily make the playoffs. And, you know, when you have the Suns and Warriors still dominating, I mean, the last time we talked about it, we were saying Suns, Warriors, Jazz. That's it. And that's still the case. Uh, Phoenix, 24 and 5. Um, the Golden State, 25 and 6. Uh, the Utah, even, 21 and 9. I mean, these are teams that are carrying the top three seeds and are probably going to carry that the whole way. But once you get down to the sort of the nitty gritty, when you're at the seven, the eighth, the nine seeds, those are sort of the situations where it's wide open in the West. And, you know, I'm excited to see a team like Minnesota, who hasn't had success in years, really find their way up to the front, to uh, to a playoff spot. And even a team like Dallas, who was expected to be way higher with it, led by Luka Doncic. And now you're at the point where you have to question organizationally what, what's going on. I mean, you're, you lose to Minnesota by six. Um, you know, you still have, um, you still have Luka dominating the whole league. I mean, he's been arguably one of the best play i would say a top five player this year i mean mvp wise curry's the front runner let's face it it's not um it's not really a contest out there i mean you could argue a few other guys but i really think it's it's curry's it's curry's to win it's curse to lose um and then but but then you also have in the rookie of the year race it's way closer i mean this is you know you have evan mobile you have kate cunningham you have scotty barnes i mean they are you know it's they aren't the traditional kinds of rookie of the year winners we looked at um you know, it's when you look at a rookie of the year winner in the NBA, it's really all about, you know, points and assists. I really feel like there hasn't really been a good defender or a good all around big guy that has sort of came into the league and established themselves since DeAndre Ayton and Scotty Barnes. 
uh, is already, you know, he's been a great defender, guarding multiple positions. He's improving from the three point uh, from three pointer, and um, I really feel as though it's. Maybe he's ahead. I mean, you. I think Mobley might be, uh, I would say, the front runner here. I mean, he's t- tons of rebounds, good scoring ability, even from outside. I mean, he's the favorite, in my opinion. I mean... And when you're playing for a team like um, when you're playing for a team like Cleveland, it's hard to imagine that um, you know that when you're when you're I don't want to say that they're a terrible team. They've looked okay this season, but they're not they're not anything to write home about. Um, but you know, 13 points a game, eight rebounds, two assists. He's shooting almost 50 percent from the field. Um, he's arguably been the most valuable player for Cleveland. And it's interesting, the two guys who have the best chance to win Rookie of the Year are big men this year and you know i like to see how the league is valuing these big guys because you know i feel like scoring is so emphasized nowadays it's hard to imagine that two big men or two good defenders that sort of put themselves more in line with guys like Kawhi or rudy gobert and you know these two are more you know more along that their skill sets and i think as though you know, everyone looked at it as, as it was Cade Cunningham's to win. I mean, he's had a slow start. He's finding his groove a little bit now. He had some injuries to deal with beforehand. But, you know, I would say he's not necessarily up to Barnes or Mobley's level. And, you know, when you look at the ones who, they're my guys. I think they are, I would say, the favorites to win it this year. And, you know, I know the MVP is just kind of, it's Curry's right now. But if the, if you're looking for a race, an awards race to watch in the NBA, that's the one I'm looking at. I mean, these two are sort of looking and putting themselves in a position where you know i think more people are going to realize how good these players really are barnes at 15 8 and 3 almost 50 percent very similar to mobley um you know it, it's i'm happy to see how successful they've been this year um but now we switch now a little bit to wrap up for the last 15 minutes we're going to go into baseball a little bit specifically because you know in the new york market you've had a lot of things come up even with the lockout going on you've had I would say the best thing the Mets have done since signing Max Scherzer, but the best thing that the organization could do to essentially stabilize what's been going on, it is the hiring of Buck Showalter. Buck is... Buck is a New York favorite. I mean, he managed the Yankees back in the in the uh, in the early mid '90s and led them from a fledgling 500 team to a playoff contender and grabbing that first. By the way, it's the first. He won the first ever wild card in the American League in 1995 and putting the Yankees back in the playoffs for the first time since 1981. And you know, people have loved him for that because he got the Yankees back to where they were. Then Joe Torre came in and the Yankees won three in a row. And you know, he has maintained that kind of success where. He's gone. I mean, most recently that was found when he joined the Orioles. I mean, the Orioles haven't been successful in years. Um, they're just in a, in a rebuild right now. They got a lot of great prospects coming up. Adley Rutschman, for one, going to be, I would say, a top five catcher when he enters the league. I'm not, and I'm that strong on him. I mean, he's a switch hitter who has dominated minor league, uh, minor league pitching. Um, he's looked good on the defensive side of the ball. Um, I would say, you know, even though he's playing double A, triple A, he's going to be a top. I'm, I'm not going to say top five. I'll say top eight, a top eight catcher going into the league when he makes his debut, I would say. Hopefully in the 2022 season, I think he'll be a May or June call-up if you're the Orioles because you have a great foundation around them. I mean, Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, great performances this season and with Adley coming up too and also Grayson Rodriguez in the background. You know, there's a lot to be hopeful about in Baltimore. But I digress. That's what they're looking at now. But in the past, this was the team with Adam Jones. This was the team with Nick Mar- Well, I think this was the end of Nick Mar- 
Marcakis's tenure in Baltimore. Chris Tillman, the beginning of Kevin Gosman's career. This was Buck Showalter's team, and he led them to a couple of different playoff runs. And, you know, the, I would say the highlight of that Orioles run was the bases-clearing double by Delman Young back in, um, I want to say 2012, 13 maybe, um, against the Tigers, maybe 2014, where he clears the bases, the crowd goes nuts. This was Buck Showalter's team, and he managed them effectively. He used the bullpen effectively. This was sort of old-school baseball at its finest. And now, when you're a team like the Mets, who, yes, you're more analytically driven. I think this is where a lot of people have an issue with the Buck signing. Um, when you're when you're in this modern day and age, and you have managers like Aaron Boone, and Alex Cora, and A.J. Hinch, they are sort of feeders for the organizational strategy. They are looking not to make their own decisions, but they're looking at what the organization wants to do. It's not them making the moves, taking out the pitcher in the seventh inning. It's the departments upstairs that are telling them that it's a better move to take out a pitcher in the seventh inning. And when you're show Walter, are you going to take that nonsense from the organization? Probably not. I know it's a misconception that he's an old school guy and he doesn't look at analytics favorably, but he does. I mean, this is the kind of guy who looks more along the lines of Joe Girardi, where you have analytics as a good factor to use in your organization, but not necessarily the be-all and end-all of any move that you could possibly make. When you're a team like Tampa or when you're a team like Oakland, and we're going to get into the Mark, Mark Conte hire in a second, these are teams that need sort of that feeder. You need a guy like Kevin Cash to sort of facilitate the moves that the organization wants to make. But when you're a big market team like the Yankees or the Mets or the Dodgers or the Cardinals or the Red Sox, you need a guy that can sort of find that balance. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Yankees haven't seen success over the last few years. They're trying to play more into the Tampa or the Oakland handbook when they really should be making their own. They should use analytics and they should use the way that Boone makes his moves to sort of be not the be-all and end-all factor but as an important decision-making factor, not the be-all and end it is a useful tool that has been very effective for many organizations. Tampa and Oakland, by far, easily have used it to be contenders with minimal payrolls. But you have to say this. Analytics plays a different role for different organizations. It's just a fact. And, you know, when you're... Um, when you're the Yankees, it's different. But when you're the Mets, and now you have, you know, Max Scherzer coming in to be one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest free agent signings before the uh, before the lockout started. You know, you're in a position where it's. I'm excited to see what Buck can bring to a Mets team that has not made the, has not uh, won a World Series in 35 years. They made it in 2015. They made it in 2000, only to be shut down by teams that were clearly better than them. The Yankees looked dominated them. The Royals dominated them. They, the Mets won one game in 2015, and they won two in 20 and 2000. And um, excuse me, they won one in 2000. And this is this is not. This is not this is not what they want to be. This is not um this is not who the Mets are looking to be. They're looking to be a perennial playoff team. When you're spending all this money, you have to be a perennial playoff team. And now you're at the point where patience is running thin among the organization. You made huge moves last offseason. You sign Lindor and he hits 20 home runs and doesn't necessarily, you know, play to the whole, I'm Francisco Lindor and I'm a top five shortstop in Major League Baseball. Now you're barely scraping whether or not he's a top 10 guy. And Lindor is just, you know, just one issue. You still have injuries on the pitching staff. 
Gustav de Grom looking like a god on the mound, literally. I mean, the, his ERA is under one before he gets hurt. And now, you know, you still have to wonder, can he stay on the field? It, it, we haven't seen it in a long time. I mean... He's a Cy Young. He's a Cy Young favorite when he's on the field, and he still hasn't managed to do that in years. And you know, Scherzer's getting up there. He's no spring chicken. I mean, he's almost at forty. He's not forty yet, but he's getting there. And you know, when you're the Mets, fans' patience, as I said, fans' patience is running thin. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this is a this is a team that you need to make the playoffs this year. It's it's a must. And now with Showalter coming in, I think they can definitely grab a wild card spot, potentially win the division. I still think Atlanta. You know, I know they won the World Series, but on paper, this is still not exactly a team that is going to be, I would say, the favorite going into this season. I still think that, you know, they are a good team, let's face it, but they are not on paper better than the Dodgers. On paper, they may not even be better than the Mets. I think actually that okay, sorry, that's a little strong. On paper, they're not better than the Dodgers. Let's let's just that I'm a hundred percent on that. But um, you know, Atlanta sort of surprised everybody when they won the World Series. It wasn't a team that um anyone thought would make a run. I mean, they had to deal with an LA team that was clearly better. I mean, you had Trey Turner, you still had Scherzer, you had um uh Kershaw didn't play in the postseason, but you had Orias, you had um, you had Cody Bellinger, you had even, even with no Muncie too. I mean, this is, this was a Dodger team that may have been marked thin a little bit, but I still didn't think that they were going to win the, that they were going to take the series handily. I mean, it was, uh, it was the Dodgers to win. They didn't do it. Atlanta took advantage and they beat Houston in the World Series. And now, you know, this is, um, this is, if you're looking, if you're in the Mets position, I think there's a real optimism out there that you could potentially win the division. I don't think Philly can do it. Certainly Washington can't do it. And there's no shot Miami can do it. So what are you left with? You're left with the Braves and the Mets. And I don't know if the Braves on paper are going to be just as good. You're getting Ronald Acuna back, but it isn't necessarily going to be, can you maintain that level of success? There hasn't been a back-to-back World Series champion since the Yankees. I mean, it, it, that's that's how long ago it was, people. I mean, it, it's been over, over 20 years. I mean, the Red Sox have been the most consistent team for World Series in a 15-year span, but they didn't do it back-to-back. The Giants didn't do it back-to-back even when they won three in six years. There was a gap year. 2011, 2013, 2015. Yes, they were a good team, but no, they did not win the World Series or have a deep playoff run in any of those years. And, you know, when you're Atlanta, you have to wonder, are we? do we even have a shot this year? And yeah, of course you do. There's always a chance, but, you know, on paper not necessarily going to be a favor going into the season. And, you know, that's definitely going to be something I'm going to look at going into, hopefully, when we get a season. I, I really hope we get a season in spring training, but I don't even know if that's going to happen. I don't even know if we're going to start on time. It's shocking to see the state of sports right now. You have COVID in three out of the four leagues, and you have baseball in a lockout. Unbelievable. I, I'm amazed that sports has remained so relevant in the American public eye, given the bad publicity that every league has had over the last um, few months or, or last few weeks or so. But lastly, you know, I was going to go into the Marcante signing. I mean, this was, uh, you know, it's okay. So Oakland has had Bob Melvin at the helm for 15 years now, and he has been great. He has managed to lead them to playoff runs when no one thought they would. I mean, there was a, the first one he had back in um, back in 2012 when you had the Sonny Gray show and, you know, you take the Tigers to five games in the ALDS and you eventually lose in a heartbreaking fashion. Um, 
It was a good run. You know, they haven't made the ALCS yet, but they've had good runs. You make the wild card game in 2018, even when you don't have a starter, you have a really just a brutal matchup against the Yankees. And, you know, if you're the Yankee organization, you think it's a must win. And they obviously they destroyed them. I mean, Liam Hendricks allows the home run to judge in the first inning. And that was kind of it. It was over. Um, they couldn't really bounce back from that. I mean, you had good relievers. You get Lou Trevino in there. He had a pretty good season that year. But again, couldn't manage to get them over the playoff hurdle. And now this is a transition period for Oakland because the AL West... It doesn't favor them anymore. The Rangers have the best middle infield in baseball. Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, by far, you have a top five shortstop and a top five second baseman. No argument there. They're arguably the best. They're not. They were. They're the best middle infield in Major League Baseball. Let's deal with it. Okay, they are. And now you have Houston, who is potentially losing Carlos Correa, but still have pretty much all the talent from their ALCS team or their World Series team that they just had in 2021. And now you know. Texas is in there. Seattle, they were down to the last game of the season, and they were in there. They're still a contender. And the Angels, now they signed Noah Syndergaard, but you're getting Mike Trout back. You wanted a full season from Otani. You're getting Rendon back. This is a team with a pretty solid offense. You got Jared Walsh in there, too, a great first baseman. Max Stassi, a very solid catcher. It's a good team. They haven't made the playoffs in forever, but now they're adding some pitching help with Noah Syndergaard. It's possible they can win 80, 85 games. And in a league like the AL, maybe that's a wild card spot. I think, um, I actually, I, I may retract that statement. I don't know if 85 would get you a wild card in the AL. I mean, Toronto, Tampa, Boston, the Yankees, the, uh, Detroit, for that matter, maybe can get back in there too. Chicago, there are so many talented teams in the American League. It's hard to really think that a team with 85 wins could get there. But still, I will maintain that the Angels are a team that has the potential to have a good season. There are, I would say... 12 out of 15 teams in the American League have the potential to have a good season. I think you can eliminate Baltimore. I think you can eliminate a team like um, uh, maybe um, maybe Texas. Uh, not not Texas, excuse me. Um, I would say Baltimore by far, but, um, you know, uh, definitely a team like uh, Kansas City in there. Probably not going to have a good run. Uh, Minnesota, I maybe would put them in that category. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, 12 out of 15 teams in a playoff race. And even and in the National League, it's completely the opposite. I mean, the NL Central, I mean, it's it's a wasteland out there. Cincinnati, hopefully going to have a good season, but I think it's the Brewers' division to win. You have the AL East, where three out of five really don't have a playoff chance. And the NL West, where two out of five don't have a playoff chance. It's the polar opposite there. So... Definitely going to be a lot to look forward to there with the baseball season. We hope it's going to happen, but so much there. I'm really excited to see how it goes. I mean, it's it's football's football dominates the sports world right now. That's what I'm really looking forward to the most. But um, definitely going to be interesting to see if the NBA postpones, if the NHL can get back on its feet after this holiday break, and if baseball can even have a season with all these managerial hires that I really want to see play out sort of in the grand scheme of things. But that's going to do it today for In-Depth on Sports. I hope, again, you have a very merry holiday. Uh, again, I did mention previously we would have a guest this week, but obviously that did not work out. As you can see, we just ended the show. Uh, but that will return in the coming weeks. We have uh, Marlon Smith coming on uh, next, hopefully next week. We have him potentially, as well as uh, in a few weeks, Rich Kalachi, a uh, CRO of Overtime. He's going to be joining us to discuss the future of sports content creation. I'm really excited to see how that's going to turn out. Uh, special thanks to Henry from Man Prediction Producer. Gave me all the info for this week. Uh, thanks, everybody. We're going to see y'all hopefully next week. Have a very, very Merry Christmas. Thanks, everybody.